Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. The summer setup. The past few weeks have seen stocks return to near all-time highs, and the small caps are on their longest monthly winning streak since 1995. Are we headed for more of the same, or will oil, crypto, or another surprise spoil the party? Plus, consumers are flocking back to theaters as some highly anticipated movies hit the screen. And stocks like AMC are popping as their fortunes revive. Is the box office back? And the retroactive capital gains tax hike. If it happens, we'll look at the fallout for investors, especially those in crypto. But we begin with today's markets, and Seema Modi is here with those number for us. Hi, Seema. Hey, Kelly. The predominant narrative around this market today, really around the reopening of the economy, U.S. manufacturing ticking up in the month of May. Good afternoon, everyone. Here is where we stand. Three hours left in trade first trading day of June. You can see stocks are actually off the highs of the session, but what is getting a lot of attention is the move that we are seeing in the oil market. Highest level since 2018. Optimism building around this summer driving season. In fact, U.S. gasoline demand jumping nearly 10% on Sunday, the highest in summer of 2019. That has prompted this big move that we have seen in the oil producers and refiners. Marathon Oil, Devon Energy up double digits right now, nearly 13%. What's also working today for the bulls, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, the banks moving here as yields move lower. In fact, Goldman Sachs, best-performing stock on the Dow right now. And then take a look at Cloudera, a $5.3 billion deal to take the company private uh, at $16 a share by two private equity firms. The stock is up big. You can see right here, up about 24%. But it is worth noting the company has struggled with competition from Amazon to Google. And prior to this deal being announced, it was actually trading below its IPO price. But the big winner here, Kelly Evans, Carl Icahn, owns about 18% of Cloudera. Wow. All right, Seema, thank you. Bringing us up to speed, Seema Modi. It's the first day of June, like Seema said. It's been a calmer few weeks for the markets. But will it all continue as prices surge and labor and supply shortages get worse? CNBC senior markets commentator Michael Santoli is here with the summer setup for stocks, Mike. Yeah, Kelly, the summer setup was sort of a sideways spring. Uh, It's been kind of firm, but quiet or maybe indecisive. Take a look at a one year of the S&P 500. This point here in mid-April when it started to basically flatten out, we're about at those levels we reached April 16th. Well, what's happened since then? Well, earnings in the first quarter came in up 50 percent, 25 percentage points better than expected. But you also had the flare up of inflation concerns. Talk about uh, tax hikes down the road potentially. And so the market's been assimilating itself. Also, though, 60 percent of all stocks are higher since then. So breadth has been good. Below the surface, it seems more like traction than not. Now, you do have some seasonal patterns that come into play in June. June on net uh, over the many years has been a net negative month uh, seasonally, but it's more in the back half and also more recently. And when the market is up more than 10 percent going into June, market tends to actually do a little bit better. Uh, One thing, Kelly, I always say is we talk about the summer doldrums as if they're a negative thing. 
quiet markets tend to be stronger markets. And so I do think you still have cyclical leadership that gives the market the benefit of the doubt going into the summer, even if it's not really a burst higher. Never short a dull market, as they say. That's the saying. So here's my question. Are you watching what's going on in crypto? You know, over the weekend, traders were talking about there's been a triple bottom, I think, in the price of Bitcoin. And as much as we joke about boomer coin, it does seem to have some correlation because you came in with stocks super strong this morning as that had firmed up. Then Bitcoin lost its gains and the S&P and the Nasdaq went negative. There is a little bit of an echo. It's tough to really say statistically which is leading, which is lagging and whether they matter day to day. Um, I think my main takeaway is that it was cut in half from the highs and the equity market kind of handled it. Um, So I'm watching that. I'm also watching the revival of the action in the meme stocks uh, for whether that does also place the core of the market on defense, because that's what happened in January. Uh, You see people brace for more volatility getting filtered through the overall market. I don't think it's at an extreme just yet, but it's building. All right. Fair enough. And that's a good point. We are 50 percent off the highs uh, for Bitcoin, and we're basically at all-time highs uh, in the market for stocks. Mike, thank you. Less volatility, more vaccinations, and new leadership. Could that all be just what the market needs to keep the rally going into summer, or will price hikes spoil the fun? Joining me now with their hot picks for the summer are Jason Brady, the CEO of Thornburg Investment Management, and Alan Boomer, who's Chief Investment Officer of Momentum Advisors. Welcome to both of you. Jason, give me your picks. What do you think is going to keep working as we get in, you know, to June, July and August? Sure. So I'd say one thing that's pretty clear is that financials are really benefiting from a couple of secular and cyclical tailwinds. Uh, So we're overweight there. Uh, A number of the money center banks. Uh, Another cyclical area that we like a lot is is connected to tech, which is semiconductors, obviously a lot of shortages. Geographically, Europe is behind us from an opening perspective. And so that tailwind's really nice. So a balanced portfolio with those kinds of names. Got it. So you like Europe, you like some of the semiconductor plays, some of the financials as well. Alan, what about you? So my view is a little different. I think everyone's talking about a reopening. I think what we're going to see is sort of a hybrid of COVID life and pre-COVID life. Hmm. I think that folks will be staying home for work. And some of the things that they got accustomed to doing while they were at home during the, the lockdown. They're going to continue to doing just, just because they're more convenient, right? So I, I like Peloton. Like Peloton is one of those stocks that has sold off a ton this year, especially because of the recall of the tread, but also because this notion that if the economy is reopening, people are going to ditch their at-home workouts. I, I disagree. I think this is, there's huge value in this stock because I think the company has a cult following, and the people that use Pelotons are just addicted to it. And I just think that this stock is going to rebound substantially. Interesting. It's down 27% year-to-date, but obviously had a much better May, up about 11%. And, Jason, I saw you nodding. Do you have a Peloton bike? I don't. I don't. I, I do have a, a number of things to work out on at home. But the funny thing is I thought he said telecom. And I was <laughs> like, yeah, you know, that's a really interesting <laughs> trade. I like that, too. But we're maybe on different sides of the coin. Got it. So you wouldn't necessarily be a buyer of Peloton. Um, I, we talked a little bit about Europe. You like some other parts of international equities, too. Tell me about that. Well, look, again, I think there's a couple of dynamics in play here that we've seen over the course of the last year. And for us, uh, names like Taiwan Semi are really, really interesting. Uh, Total is a European energy. On the flip side, you know, I, I really would be cautious on some of the very China-centric names 
uh, just because what you're seeing there is is maybe what we will see in six or even 12 months from the Fed, which is really the PBOC tampening down on a lot of credit growth. So it's it's a pretty macro moment right now, frankly, and, and that's uncomfortable for a bunch of folks at Thornburg that, that look at fundamentals. Well, and I know you're not big on thinking that we're going to have out-of-control inflation saying uh, most of the current price spike will reverse as these supply constraints are resolved, that lumber literally grows on trees, <laughs> <laughs> and that the double-digit percentage increase in new car prices, for instance, is running out of gas, don't fight the Fed, and so forth. Alan, I was going to get your perspective on that as well, because I think you're a little bit more hesitant about you know, how strong uh, parts of the economy are going to be this year. What is your take on the kind of inflation supply constraint story, and how is that going to impact stocks? Yeah, I think inflation is a big thing to be worried about for sure. Uh, I think it's probably a bigger concern for fixed income uh, than equities. I think equities are a great hedge against inflation. But I'll tell you some of the things that we're, we're doing for clients. I mean, one, we're looking at uh, residential real estate, uh, REITs. You know, there, there's an iShares um, ETF that we like, REZ, that owns a lot of names like Public Storage and Avalon Bay. Our our view is that if you want to be fighting inflation, you need to be an inflation-friendly asset. So we think real estate is one. We think gold's another. And, and maybe some of these cryptocurrencies. We, we're starting to, for the very first time in our firm's history, hmm. talk to clients about incorporating cryptocurrencies into their portfolios to a really, really small percentage. So, Alan, expand on that, if you would, for a moment, because a lot of the retail investors who have been in crypto are trying to figure out how strong demand might be and. I would, I guess, call you more of the institutional side. What, you know, would you go into Bitcoin or Ether or, you know, you name it, you know, the, all of these different types of cryptos right now? Um, is there a kind of a price you're looking into? Is it just a, a portfolio construction strategy? You know, tell me about that. Great question. So it's all about value, right? And I think that what, what's been a big theme of 2021 is sort of the mainstream the, you know, focus on cryptocurrencies from corporate CFOs to uh, n- not just the, the folks that are, you know, the, the tech people, right? And as you start to see more CFOs uh, focus on adding crypto to their balance sheets, you start to see more focus on, um, you know, Coinbase's IPO. I mean, they, they could be uh, bought by a bank one day. I just see that this is a, a trend that's not going away. And I think the idea that this uh, you know, Bitcoin in particular is down so much recently. Perfect buying opportunity. I'm a big value person. It's the reason why I like Peloton down here. I like things that have gone down a bunch that I believe in long term. I love it. A lot of people like things that are going up in price. Alan's like, nope, I want the stuff that's collapsing. <laughs> I'll pick that up all day. Um, just kidding. Anyway, Alan Boomer, Jason Brady, really good to have you guys both here and talk through this investment landscape. We really appreciate it. Coming up, we are pulling back the curtain on AMC today. The stock is surging again after more than doubling just last week. Between the Reddit trade, the reopening of theaters and share offerings, they've got a ton of tailwinds right now. But is it worth its high valuation? It's up 1,300 percent this year. We'll dig into that in a moment. Stay with us. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. 
Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back. The summer box office kicking off with a bang as Hollywood begins a return to normal. Paramount's A Quiet Place 2 made more than $48 million in just the first three days of the holiday weekend. That's the biggest opening for a film since the pandemic began. The box office overall took in nearly $100 million in ticket sales over the four-day weekend, and theaters are cashing in, too. AMC shares are soaring again today on box office bullishness, and on that $230 million share sale, they're up 20% to over $31 a share right now. But can all of this you last. For more, let's welcome in Brent Lang. He's executive film and media editor at Variety Magazine. And Alicia Reese is an analyst for Wedbush Securities. Welcome to both of you. Alicia, I just want to start with the stock itself. Uh, does AMC, is that justified at over 30 bucks a share after the latest offering? Well, it's not based on fundamentals. Um, you have a lot of the momentum driven by retail investors who are not necessarily looking at the fundamentals. Um, the current uh, share price um, suggests that it should be trading at um, mid-20s um, times uh, consensus uh, 2023 EBITDA, whereas it's typically traded between seven and nine times that. So we think it's it's well overpriced here, but we don't necessarily think it's going to come back down to um, trade in line with fundamentals as if retail investors maintain this um, fervor. Well, and so would you say that AMC has taken advantage of the run up in its share price to shore itself up financially? I mean, has it bought itself time or is the return of people to the box office itself telling you that this company is worth more than than people thought? Well, I think they've absolutely been opportunistic and um, they've done a great job of, um, you know, selling shares at this elevated share price and they've um, paid down some debt. They're looking at now um, purchasing some additional theaters to boost EBITDA in their out years. Um, I, I still don't think it's it's worth where it's trading right now um, if you look at fundamentals, um, but they're absolutely taking advantage of where the share price is, is trading these days. Brent, where do you think this is all headed as AMC revives and starts to figure out how to, how to survive and, and maybe even thrive once we get through this unique period? Well, it's definitely good news that uh, Quiet Place 2 had such a strong opening, as well as that Cruella did did well, despite the fact that it was available for rental on Disney+. Plus. But I think when you look at AMC's uh, financials, you know, there are some major questions here. They have a, a great deal of debt. They, uh, as of their last quarter, over $5 billion worth of debt. They're still losing money. And, you know, there, there are some major questions about how uh, fast the box office will be able to recover from what has been over a year of closures, capacity restrictions, and skittish audiences. So I, I just want to pick up on that, Brent, for a moment. As you know, as people kind of get back into the theaters and we go from being excited at a $100 million weekend to kind of demanding one, um, what's priced in for the theaters? What are they going to be able to do to survive in, in this Netflix world? And even AMC has done some unique things with structuring, you know, a revenue share, for instance, with streaming. Well, I think, as you just alluded, what um, what's you know the, the landscape post pandemic is is fundamentally altered from the one pre pandemic. Uh, you look at windows, which is the industry term for the amount of time that movies are exclusively in theaters, 
and they've been cut in half. Um, at best, they'll probably be about 45 days before major films will go onto home entertainment platforms. And that could end up really cutting into a film's box office performance. Um, and as you said, uh, there's only more competition in the streaming space. You have Disney Plus now, you have HBO Max, you have Paramount Plus. There are a lot of options for consumers. You know, I think in the short term, people are eager to get out of their homes. And that means they'll probably buy movie tickets and they'll go to cinemas. But over the longer term, maybe convenience will win out. And we know reportedly that Mudrick, which was one of the shareholders of AMC, kind of made Alicia's point to its investors earlier. It sold out of its, again, reportedly sold out of its stake, telling investors that AMC is, is overvalued. So we have a $5 billion debt load, Alicia, on about a $15 billion market cap after this run-up. How are they going to be able to service that debt and get back to a, a, a healthier company that can be viable for what it, that future that Brent's describing? Sure. I think that's that's a great question. I think they're going to do more at the market share sales um, since the share price is so elevated. As long as it stays elevated, they should sell more shares and repay their debt um, balance as much as they possibly can. I think that should be priority over purchasing um, new theaters or, you know, distressed theaters. Um, but, you know, uh, as long as they can repay a significant amount of, of debt, they can get to, um, you know, some some growth. We think optimistically 2023 box office can get returned to 2018, 2019 levels. Um, optimistically, with shortened theatrical windows, you have um, the balance of big blockbusters staying in theaters a little longer. But on the other end, you have um, smaller films that would have gone direct to streaming now potentially playing in theaters in a shortened window. Um, so the theaters will actually get that revenue, whereas they would not have otherwise. And that's a great point. And yeah, this year it looks like you're saying could we still be down 60% from 2019 levels at the box office. So a, a ways to climb out of this hole. Alicia and Brent, thank you both for joining me. As we continue to watch AMC shares up about 20% today. Coming up, crude oil has been crushing it in the past little while. We'll talk more about the price action with an 11% gain, a multi-year high in sight as we inch closer to $70 a barrel. We'll tell you what's behind the oil boom and what OPEC is up to next. And don't forget, you can watch us live anytime using the CNBC app, even from the theater. We're back in a minute. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to The Exchange. We had a strong start to the trading activity this morning, but things have really tapered off this afternoon. As I mentioned, some are watching crypto, which has kind of led us one way or the other. Bitcoin's reversed from its weekend moves. It's been sliding a little bit. We're seeing pressure across the market. The Nasdaq is down almost a quarter percent right now. The S&P is down by six, and the Dow is hanging on to just a 23-point gain. We were up 319 points at the highs. Shares of Abbott Labs are on pace for their worst day since last March, after they warned full-year profits will take a hit as demand for COVID-19 testing starts. Starts to wane. Abbott is now negative for the year. It's down eight and a half percent today, and it could see its seventh week of declines. That would be its longest losing streak since 2016. Shares of Beyond Meat are also getting hit after notching their best week in a year. They were up 36 percent last week, but we're down about six percent today. 
And they're also on pace to break the longest daily win streak since last October. So a lot of reversals today. It's smooth sailing for the cruise stocks, though, with gains of more than 2% for the likes of Carnival, Royal Caribbean, and Norwegian. These names are all within 5% of their 52-week highs, but we're still talking about declines of 30 to 60% from pre-pandemic levels. Let's get over to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. Florida has banned transgender women and girls from playing on public school sports teams intended for athletes born as girls. Governor DeSantis signed the bill into law at a Christian academy in Jacksonville. The move comes on the first day of Pride Month. And legal challenges are almost certain, but will there also be boycotts? Look at this broadening front of the culture wars tonight on the news with Shepard Smith. President Biden setting a meeting with a key Republican negotiator to try to hammer out a bipartisan deal on infrastructure spending. He's expected to meet Senator Shelley Moore Capito tomorrow. The administration has set a Monday deadline to try to hammer out an agreement. And take a look at this video. Can you tell what this is between these two buildings? Here it is. That would be a glass swimming pool suspended 115 feet above the ground. The London Sky Pool is now open. The 82-foot-long pool is billed as the first of its kind. But, Kelly, I guess it depends on where you not literally stand, but figuratively stand. I mean, some people think it's pretty cool. Others who are afraid of heights may not. I mean, it's cool (laughs) and terrifying. It took me a second when you were showing that video to realize what I was looking at. And now I can't stop watching these the legs dangling in the air. Yeah. And, you know, it's pretty cool because from below you can actually see, you know, you can see the people. So you can see from below. Pretty cool shots of the city as well. But um, very high. It's a marvel, but I don't think I'm going anytime soon. Same. Rahel, thank you, Rahel Solomon. Crude is hitting its highest level since October of 2018 as OPEC and allies reconfirmed a gradual production increase through July. It's a good thing Brian Sullivan here, Brian, because why is a supply increase boosting prices today? Well, welcome. Hey, Kelly, listen, you just talked about Beyond Meat. This year has been beyond good for oil and oil stocks as well. As you noted, oil has surging. By the way, if you're not counting at home, crude oil is up 50% in just six months. Okay, so you asked, why is oil going up even as supply goes up? Because demand is growing faster than supply. Amazing how that works in commodity markets. The demand in the United States, Kelly, is on the rise because you got more people driving. Everybody bought cars during the pandemic. We're seeing mass transit down Two million people getting on a plane. So in some cities, traffic is now above where it was pre-pandemic because nobody's riding the subway or a bus. They're they're driving that you know 1998 Honda Accord they bought, so they wouldn't they could be alone. Anyway, supply growth here in the U.S. and OPEC is still fairly muted, even in the face of increasing demand. For example, U.S. producers not increasing their capital spending instead of drilling new wells. Kelly, they're giving money back to shareholders. And that has certainly helped the uh, supply growth slow down. And OPEC has done something amazing. They've actually stuck together under the leadership of His Highness Abdulaziz bin Salman. Speaking of OPEC, meeting earlier today, virtually, of course, OPEC does plan to gently, slowly put the 2 million barrels a day that they took offline as COVID hit back on the market, a couple hundred thousand barrels a day in increments. Now, The Saudi energy minister, Abdulaziz bin Salman, would not give in to numerous questions about whether they would do more. But I did have a chance to ask him whether or not about the relationship with the U.S., Kelly, and whether or not he has or plans to speak with U.S. Department of Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm. 
Yesterday we saw each other in another setting which has to do with mission innovation. She was participating and I was participating. And there is nothing that would not prevent us from reaching out to each other whenever there is a need for us to reach out to each other. Yeah, and there's the, you can see the virtual meeting and our friend Halima Croft there on the, on the middle right. It's like a giant Hollywood square. It's OPEC-style, Kelly. Uh, I try, we tried to press him on supply. He wouldn't go there. By the way, with oil's rise, the stocks have done well, but maybe not as well as you might expect. Listen to this. The XLE ETF is up eight months in a row. By the way, longest streak in more than a decade. But Tom Lee and others have pointed out that the gap between oil and where the stocks are is still wide. Here's an example. The last time oil was here, 68 bucks a barrel, the XLE was trading around $70. Well, it's now $54 with oil the same price. So, Kelly, the market is either saying oil's gotten ahead of itself or everybody's been so burned by 10 years of capital destruction in the oil stocks that they simply won't take a chance on that sector. So there's this weird gap between oil and oil stocks. Still going well, but not as well as you might have thought. Sure, and just to put a point on it today, though, you'd think, okay, they're meeting, they're talking about more supply coming online. Typically, that's not a great environment for oil prices. Why is WTI still spiking? You know, is, is it just because there's still such a sense of not enough supply to meet the level of demand or the, you know, those passenger figures that you cited? It, it's just interesting. And I know 70 has often been a ceiling here, so I guess that's the real question, is whether we kind of really get up to or even through that level. Well, even if Iran comes back on the market, gets some kind of a deal, you heard Goldman Sachs, Jeff Curry, and others say they think the market can easily absorb the extra Iranian barrels because demand, Europe's COVID case, Germany, their COVID cases are down 95% from their high. The vaccination rollout is starting to roll over. India is coming down, the third biggest oil user in the world. Hmm. India, thank goodness, their COVID cases are falling as well. So there's an optimism about the global boom not just in the U.S. And I understand our big push to EVs here, Kelly, but let's be clear, you're going to have a lot of combustion engine cars, boats, airplanes on the market there for for a while. The market just believes that even with increased supply, increased demand will outstrip that. And the big majors, they want to give the money back to shareholders rather than, you know, put it in a hole in the ground, literally, which has burned capital for a better part of a decade. Right, and increased production that way. No, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, Brian, appreciate it very much. Brian Sullivan on a big day for the oil market. And the latest Robinhood litmus test, honestly bullish and a lamp that spies on kids' study habits. It's all coming up in today's Rapid Fire, and it's right after this. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines are Kate Rooney, who's still just relishing in that Boston College win. Go Eagles, Kelly. No, no. (laughs) You know, you get a serious. Anyway, Kate Rogers is here as well. Steve Grasso is director of institutional sales with Stuart Franklin, a CNBC Fast Money trader. I know he knows the lacrosse reference that we're making here, Steve. So just go with it if you don't. And we'll roll right along into SoFi, which is enjoying a warm welcome to the NASDAQ today. Shares of the fintech company are up around 8% in their first day of trade after merging with one of Chamath Palihapitiya's SPACs. Actually, about a little less than 6% right now. Could be a litmus test of what a Robinhood IPO could look like in the weeks ahead. But it's been rough going for Palihapitiya's other blank check companies. They're all struggling over the past three months. Virgin Galactic and Clover both down more than 20%. Open Door tanking by 50%. 
And Katie's getting a lot of heat on Twitter uh, these days as well. So, you know, Chamath is, again, becoming kind of like a Madonna-esque first name only basis person here. Do you think that it's it's his involvement or SoFi as a fintech disruptor that's more of the story here today? could be both. On the fintech side, this is really the latest company that really it walks like a bank. It talks like a bank. It's a lot like a brokerage firm, yet it trades like a tech company. So that reminds you of who else? Robinhood, Square, PayPal. Those companies have done really well. And there's been a ton of investor appetite for names in the fintech space that sort of resemble a tech company, although they do a lot of sort of the boring back end things that a bank or a brokerage firm might do. SoFi, I think, is definitely benefiting from that and the story that they're a mobile platform. They're sort of the one-stop shop. Anthony Noto on Tech Check earlier mentioned that, and Deirdre asked him, are you worried that Chamath is going to sell, similar to what happened with Virgin Galactic, selling all of his stake in March? He said we don't talk to our shareholders about that. He really didn't give an answer there. But I think that is a risk that people are now pricing into some of hmm. these SPAC deals. Um, you know, that didn't necessarily exist or it just wasn't on people's radar um, three or four months ago. Exactly. No, that's a great point. Steve, what, what's your take on all of this? The, both the issues with Chamath Specs. I know you've been a fan of Virgin at times this year as well. I mean, how would you boil this down? So I, I originally invested in Virgin Galactic with a 15 handle on it, Kelly. So it's my own fault for being greedy. I watched <laughs> it trade up to almost $60. I, I sold a little bit, not, not around the highs. I sold a little bit around the middle ground. Uh, I'm still long a decent chunk of it. And, and uh, to what Kate was uh, pointing out, when Chamath sold shares, it plummeted dramatically. So I think that's always warranted. But in the business, and for as long as I've been on the street, you always know there's a couple of rules to live by. There's plenty of reasons why people sell stock. It could be family planning, divorce. It could be trust. It could be anything, uh, quite frankly. There's only one reason why people buy stock. So you don't want to get caught up too much in it uh, when when, uh, somebody, an insider, quote unquote, sells names. But the problem that we hit with SPACs is that everyone started treating these as a blanket. They were companies that were never going to earn any money. I I am in Paysafe. I'm in WPF. These are companies that make money. I'm in STEM, actually, which is the first artificial intelligence battery storage company, STEM. These are companies that have a bright future ahead of them. So you cannot, the biggest takeaway from this is that you have to look under the hood, you have to look at the balance sheet, and you have to look at these companies as individual names. I think that's the takeaway. And quickly, Kate Rooney, when are we expecting Robinhood uh, to make its debut? some point this summer. It seems like a bit of a moving target. We've seen reports that it will. the S1 hasn't dropped yet. Uh, we, that's the first step. And then... After that, it should be about a month after. So I would say early summer. But, um, you know, these these S1 targets, they move all the time. So we are on high alert. We're ready, uh, but no word yet. And we're waiting. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right. Let's move along. Talk about the Honest Company, which is getting a lot of love on the street today. A clutch of bullish initiations. And it's helping give the stock a little bit of a lift, although shares are still well off their opening day high by nearly 30 percent. We're up to about four and a half percent today, 1650 or so a share. Morgan Stanley, Citi, J.P. Morgan and Jeffries all see high growth potential for Honest. The first uh, the four firms initiating the stock as a buy or with an overweight, citing their market. Margin expansion, uh, the loyal following, the Jessica Alba premium on the brand, uh, Kate Rogers. Uh, do you think the Honest Company, I, I mean, we often see the analysts on the street um, enthusiastic, shall we say, for recent IPOs, no matter what the price performance. But I wonder if their arguments will carry weight over time or if Honest will become just another consumer brand. 
You know, and I think what you mentioned, Kelly, about the Jessica Alba premium and her being such a prominent and great spokeswoman for her own brand is really key here. Basically, every analyst note mentioned it. They mentioned her millions of followers that she has. She wears the beauty products. The cleaning products are resonating. People are buying those. You know, she's also a mom of three. She's got a lot of celebrity mom friends. And I think that's all really worked well in terms of marketing and how she's marketing the brand in particular. And clearly, all of the firms see it as a win uh, for right now. And I think it kind of makes it a bit of a differentiator um, from just a traditional spokesperson that's not necessarily tied in the brand. You know, she's the founder. She's the spokeswoman. She's wearing all the products. Right. She looks beautiful. She's got this beautiful family she's showing off online. And I think that that's working. Yeah, no, it, it, it's high stakes if she ever had, you know, I'm, I'm sure she's past the acne stage. But you know what I'm saying? Like, there's a lot you, like the stock price is, is practically a risk. See, you know, real quickly, I just want to mention the Cloudera going private today because we talk so much about IPOs. And Dan Permek and others have made this point really nicely today. But, you know, Cloudera was a, a great IPO, but it's been a tough stock for years now. Right. Tech is a moving target, I think, was what as Dan described it. And maybe whether it's the Honest Company or Peloton or, you know, SoFi or so many of these names, the first day of trade is not the whole story. I mean, that was such a highly anticipated stock. I think Intel invested at like 50 percent above, you know, some of the current levels that we're talking about years and years and years ago. And they don't always pan out. So when you look at this, Kelly, I always, I always, you know, make the comparison and people talk. I'm going to bring it back to two SPACs. When you look at, uh, you know, Honest, when you look at that company, the IPO price was $16, traded up to just below 24. I think it was the high was 23.88 to be exact. Now it's back down again. What happens is everyone gets dragged into the story. They buy it. Retail investors buy it on IPO day. Then the stock comes back down. Coinbase, we saw the same thing happen there. 250 all the way up to $430. Now back down. It's round-tripped. So when people look at a SPAC investment versus traditional IPO, SPAC investments are the only way for the retail player to play. On the same footing, that is, with the large institutions. So when you look at the, the tech companies that you just mentioned, when you start to see where people are putting their money in retail specifically, they chase tech for years. They've never been involved in a rising rate environment. And you never, rule 101, you don't invest in tech in a rising rate environment. So the lifeline that tech got was that rates did not blast through in the 10-year, that one spot seven four. Right. So it's been sort of flatlining. That's the only reason why. Why tech is performing right now versus value outperforming as it's done in the last six That's months. That's a really interesting point. It also makes me think about that Robinhood timeline we were discussing. And, you know, they almost have to have, you know, some forecast on interest rates and thinking about price hikes as they, you know, think about the timing of that IPO as well. Um, maybe we'll know more in the fall. Speaking of which, let's talk about teenagers because it's a bull market for teen workers right now. They are poised to be some of the luckiest workers this summer. The Times had a big profile on this recently. They accounted for the vast majority of newly employed people in last month's jobs report. And because of the tight labor market, they're benefiting from higher wages and prime workplace perks as well. Kate Rogers, I know you see this every single day in the companies that you're speaking with. And the anecdotes are getting more and more ridiculous that I but these are real stories of like the, of the iPhones that McDonald's in Illinois is giving out if you stay on six months and the five hundred and eight hundred thousand dollar signing bonuses. I mean, they and if you're a teen right now, all of a sudden, you know, America's workplaces want you. 
Oh, absolutely. When I was a teenager and I worked at Dairy Queen, the perk was free ice cream, right? Now they're getting signing <laughs> bonuses, as you mentioned. You know, there are iPhones at certain locations at, for McDonald's. Um, a lot of the restaurant companies in particular are trying to get younger workers in and make them realize that they can grow a career at that location. I know we talked about Chipotle a few weeks ago saying, you know, you could reach a general manager position. They're the highest paying one. You can bring in six figures in just three years. Wow. So I think there's an element of that. Teens often do seek summer jobs. So that's a trend you know, that uh, we see every year, but kind of missed out on last year due to the pandemic. So a lot of these kids are likely ready to get out and make some money. Uh, But one interesting thing in the Times feature that did stick out to me is that some of them are skipping out on high school, not willing to go back to school because the pay (laughs) is so good. And I don't know that that's necessarily a good thing either. So hopefully they they get their summer jobs. They they kind of enjoy some of these perks. But, uh, you know, you also want them to continue with their education. Kate Rooney, we should flip the whole equation. A lot of opportunity out there. People can work during the day. They can do Zoom school at night, okay, for like an hour and a half, get, you know. I mean, if these perks get any better, I'm going to start looking at the, some of these openings. It goes back to Steve <laughs> Leesman's point about uh, productivity. You can work, you know, maybe have your Zoom class open while you're working at Dairy Queen. Right, exactly. But yeah, they're lucky and they're useful. It seems like we need the uh, teens in the labor force based yeah. on some of the shortages. I, and, and it's immigration issues as well. we got to watch the Biden administration for what they're going to end up doing with foreign workers. I mean, everything in the pie, you name it. And people, they need these teens. They need workers right now, as everyone's going to experience this summer. All right, quickly, before we go, we just want to mention that TikTok parent company ByteDance has other hit products aside from TikTok itself. They have a smart lamp that lets parents remotely monitor their children while they study. The Delhi smart lamp comes with two built-in cameras and a touch screen to assist kids with homework. Parents can also hire a human proctor through the lamp. It's wildly popular in China. When the smart lamp launched last October, families snapped up 10,000 units, Steve, in the first month. So how many other things that you're able to drop in? I have Amazon. So my friends think I'm crazy because I have Amazon shows all over my house. I I don't think I need I could do the same thing with an Amazon. I can't hire a tutor from it, but (laughs) I'm I'm sure Mr. Bezos is probably thinking about how to hire a tutor uh, through Amazon as well. You have Apple, you have Google, you have Amazon. I don't think we need another one of these. But it is a testament, Kelly, to the times. Well, and there's keep- no time left. There's no time left to tutor your kids. I have four children, and it's I'm sitting there. It's like an assembly line. I coach my kids, and then we're done. And then we're done with that. And then we can do homework. And it's one after another. My wife is feeding them. I'm tutoring them, and then there's subjects I can't do that she's better at. She does those. I stick with math. I know numbers. I, this is I how lo- I wound see, up this, here. It, it, Speaking of which, you, and we saw just yesterday China moving to a three. You can now have three children, okay? I think the smart lamp, Kate Rooney, sums up why they're going to have a harder time hitting that three-child target. Uh, than They I, They know it's going to be a hard time. It's, it's going to take more than just loosening up the policy rules, I think. Definitely. It feels like the privacy concerns here. People are already worried about their kids using TikTok and all of these social media platforms, I can't imagine that this would make many parents feel okay about it. I can imagine my sister is in, my sister's a teacher and is trying to homeschool and do Zoom. I, I mean, as, as useful as this could be, I just don't see American parents adopting this in the way that it might be seeing popularity overseas. Yeah, well, time will tell uh, if this environment gets any wackier. Kate Rudy, Kate Rogers, and Steve Grasso, thank you all for joining me for Rapid Fire today. Still ahead, Tesla warning of price hikes due to supply chain pressure, but the automaker is also facing headwinds in China from both the government and its competitors. And one analyst says Tesla's pain there could wind up being Neo's gain. That's next on The Exchange. 
Welcome back. Beijing's intense scrutiny on Tesla is proving beneficial for one of its Chinese rivals and could even give China a competitive edge at EVs. Yunus Yun is in Beijing with a look at how automaker Xpeng is working to win over Tesla's customers in China. Driving through China's city streets can get hairy, even for car veterans like Xpeng executive Brian Gu. This car is one way. This- His EV startup wants to help change that with a self-driving system it believes outmaneuvers Tesla's. Being a leader uh, and developing cutting-edge technology will um, put you in front. Unlike Tesla, Xpeng is testing high-definition maps and lasers, or LiDAR, which Gu says helps drivers better read the road and ultimately, he says, makes driving safer. Tesla, you know, obviously focus on uh, using camera-only approach, uh, give them vast um, flexibility because they can do that globally. Uh, But in China, they don't have this additional information. Another nifty upgrade, valet parking to a garage up to two-thirds of a mile or one kilometer away. The plan now is for the most advanced autonomous functions to be built into Xpeng's compact P5 in the hopes of winning over China's budget and safety-conscious tech-savvy consumers. The China marketplace is always trying to innovate um, because of the, you know, the force of consumers, or force of competitors, force of government. We have to be involved. Anybody who stands still will be overtaken. And Kelly, the vice chairman told me that the focus on the the new technologies is really starting to pay off. In fact, he said that the P7, which is the sports sedan that's a direct competitor to Tesla's Model 3, hit a record in May. Eunice, it also seems like the partnership with either private companies like the parking garage that you mentioned or with public transit, you know, over here we're debating how much of that might be included in the U.S. infrastructure bill to kind of link up the road system and the infrastructure so that it can speak to these electric cars. And if China gets that right, it seems like it would definitely give their own homegrown automakers an edge over Tesla. Absolutely. And, and here in China, you know, there there isn't as much of an open debate about uh, what Beijing is going to do at any one time. Uh, Beijing invests very heavily in the EV market. Uh, it's one of the reasons why you see that it's leading the U.S. Uh, when it comes to EV infrastructure and also when it comes to the supply chain. And I think the next step that we're seeing here is a lot of these Chinese players, such as Xpeng, are really focusing now on uh, what they consider to be the next step and what really counts most, which is competing on technology. By the way, Yuna, should we expect Xpeng in the U.S. anytime soon? You know, I asked him that question. Um, he said that because there is so much investment in infrastructure in the U.S. and the discussion that's going on and focus on EV, it does provide opportunities for companies like his. Uh, he says it helps to really uh, refocus a lot of the emphasis on um, electric vehicles. So that's good for everyone. At the same time, um, it, it, he said, though, that, that, that going to the U.S. would take some time just because everything is sort of working itself out. But what I also thought was interesting was that he said that because because there is so much focus on EVs that the competitors in the U.S., such as Ford or GM, that everybody's going to start investing so much in EVs over there that that could end up leading to more competition hmm. over here. That's interesting. And that would suggest that all of this, this kind of EV race 
um, where we're pitting one U.S. company against another could actually end up paying off in terms of, I guess, our strategic placement uh, in all of that. Eunice, thanks so much. We always appreciate your time. It's great to see you. Eunice Yoon in Beijing. And City is making a call in the Chinese EV space, upgrading NIO today to say demand in China could lift that stock more than 50 percent. The shares are up 9 percent on that upgrade, but they have had a tough year. They're still down about 13 percent since January. And for more, you can read over on CNBC.com slash pro. Coming up, anxiety and uncertainty. That's the fallout Goldman CEO David Solomon sees from Biden's proposed retroactive capital gains tax. The details of the plan and what it means for your money are next. And CBC's On the Edge is back all this week at 6 p.m. Eastern. Don't miss all the hot takes you can stomach. We're back in a minute. Welcome back. President Biden is considering making his capital gains tax hike retroactive, and that's causing some consternation in the business community and investors alike. Robert Frank is here with the details for us. Robert? Kelly, for investors who hope to sell some stock this year to avoid a potential capital gains tax hike, they may already be too late. Biden's budget officially calling for his capital gains tax increase, that's from 23.8 percent to 43.4 percent, would start as of April 28th of this year. So if that passes, and that is a big if, and you sold stocks or business or property after April 28th, you could owe back taxes. Treasury also giving its first revenue projections for the capital gains tax increase and the elimination of the step-up in basis, saying those two combined would generate around $320 billion in revenue over the next 10 years, but only about a billion this year. Some CEOs, investors, and tax groups already lashing out against this possible retroactive tax. Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon saying it would, quote, create extra anxiety and extra uncertainty. There have been retroactive income tax increases before, but we have never had a retroactive capital gains tax. Treasury Secretary, uh, the Treasury saying this was all needed to prevent investors from avoiding the tax by selling assets before it takes effect. And the reason they chose April 28th is that that is, a, is the day that Biden announced his proposed tax hike, which they say officially put the taxpayers on notice, Kelly. Robert, what, for, what about for incomes under a million dollars? Because a lot of the retail public who was in some stocks and some crypto that was really well performing and sold out of it, they're going, wait a minute, what am I going to face in terms of a possible tax hike? Well, it, it's not just that your income for that year is a million dollars or more. It's that your income plus the gain combined adds up to a million or more, and then they tax whatever portion of the gain is above that at the higher rate. So you may have income of, let's say, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000, but if you have a crypto gain or a tax sale that's another $500,000, that tax will kick in for every dollar above that. So people have to remember it's the combination of your income and the gain that will equal a million dollars, then the tax kicks in. Would the tax rate go up for people making less than a million or, or no? No, no, okay. it, it, it stays it stays where it is. All right. Absolutely. So, again, it's targeted. But like you said, if you've done really well in some of those asset classes this year, you all of a sudden might find yourself in that camp. Robert, appreciate it. Our Robert That's Frank. right. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. 
How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Go to cnbcmakeit.com slash courses to register now and learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course where experts share their secrets for a dynamic resume, coming across with confidence, what to wear, and more. For a limited time, save 50% with our introductory offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses.